When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Thomas Edison was a pioneer in electricity, moving images, and audio recording. He was also the original snowbird. The inventor moved to Florida from New Jersey in 1886. His house in Fort Myers is open to the public these days and as gorgeous as you'd imagine. The white wood veranda is draped with bright pink bougainvillea. In Edison's day, visitors included President-elect Herbert Hoover and Henry Ford. Ford loved it so much that he bought the place next door. At the behest of the car maker and the tyre tycoon Harvey Firestone, Edison built a lab in his garden. He was perfecting an American alternative to rubber made from Florida goldenrods when he died in 1931. These tycoons were trendsetters. More than half a million Americans moved to Florida last year, more than any other state. New York's outflows to the Sunshine State were the highest. Donald and Melania Trump also switched their primary residence from New York to their mansion in Palm Beach last year. Will Florida return the president's embrace with a moment of electoral magic next month? With 24 days to go, This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, does Florida hold the key to this election? The COVID outbreak in the White House has upended President Trump's re-election campaign. Well behind in national polls, his path to victory once again goes through the Electoral College. And that means he has to win Florida, now his home state, and the biggest battleground of all. Which way will Florida go this time? In this episode, we'll look at Florida's two key demographics, senior citizens who worry about the president's poor handling of the pandemic, and Hispanics among whom he's faring better. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, The Washington Correspondent. Charlotte, John, I know we keep saying this at the beginning of the podcast, but a lot has happened in the past week. Last time we talked, President Trump had just gone into a hospital with COVID-19. Since then, he's re-emerged. He had that strange COVID motorcade moment. There's been a vice presidential debate and the president's polling numbers have absolutely cratered. What have you both made of it all? I found the vice presidential debate to be pretty interesting, in part because Pence was really good at sticking to what felt like a very conventional Republican message of tax reform and deregulation. And of course, there's all this other chaos going on. There's President Trump contracting COVID and his handling of COVID. There's news of the stimulus package and whether President Trump might hold up any further stimulus. 
until after the election or you know, may not move forward at all in working with Democrats on the stimulus. And Pence's message was essentially, there's nothing to see here. Let's talk about taxes. And so we'll see in the coming days whether that was effective, whether he's able to redirect attention to what Republicans want to be talking about, which is not COVID, but President Trump's handling of the economy. I think it's pretty hard to see that breaking through given how much else is going on. But I do think that Pence did a good job in making that case. John, what did you make of the vice presidential debate? I thought it was dull, which was a really a welcome surprise in American politics. It was a relief kind of They both are quite skilled. I felt that Senator Harris was probably restraining herself a bit. I suspect that if President Trump hadn't been ill, her attacks would have been far more forthright. Vice President Pence was a very skilled debater. He has an incredible ability to stay on message. He's icy. He brings the tempo of the debate down, which I thought was very effective. I don't think it'll change anybody's mind, but it was a sort of throwback to another era in American politics. I think Pence did what every Republican would want him to do, is which he was very, very on message in contrast to the president himself. I agree with that. I thought that Vice President Pence did a really good job here just in terms of a political performance. I mean, he has an ability to sound deeply reasonable, even when the things he's saying or the things he's defending are not necessarily reasonable. Kamala Harris By contrast, I think she's a very impressive politician. You look at her CV and it's hard not to be impressed. But people keep saying that she's a wonderful debater or a wonderful inquisitor. They said that before the Democratic primary. They said that before this debate. Frankly, I'm yet to see it. I don't think she did badly in this debate, but I don't think she pushed her case particularly well. However, vice presidential debates tend not to matter all that much. But I know we said that about the presidential debate last time around. And since then, in fact, President Trump's polling numbers have fallen off a cliff. What do you guys make of that development? I think those polling numbers probably reflect two things. The first is a debate performance that was aimed at nobody other than his supporters. I mean, what he really had to do is try to upend the race's dynamics because he's behind and appears to be falling further behind. He didn't do that. So anyone who had doubts about his character or his temperament would probably not have had those doubts assuaged by his performance. And the second thing is his handling of his illness, I think, reinforces the idea that his administration hasn't taken it terribly seriously. So I think the polling numbers reflect doubts about those two performances. I also think that in a crisis, presidents can seize the moment to empathize with Americans and to play not only the role as the, of the person who's coordinating policy and the commander in chief, but as a national figure who can help a nation grieve or can convey really any kind of sympathy with people who are going through problems. And President Trump hasn't really been able to do that through this crisis. Him actually contracting the virus would seem to be a very obvious opportunity for him to empathize with all those who suffered from it. Instead, he said, don't let it dominate you. That's pretty hard. It's just as a tactical move, it seems like a missed opportunity for him when he could have conveyed a bit more empathy for all of the hundreds of thousands of people who have either died or lost a loved one. Of course, it's great news that the president appears to be recovering from COVID-19. However, he really doesn't have a lot of time to rescue those polling numbers between now and Election Day. If he is going to pull off a win in the Electoral College, he absolutely has to win Florida. And that's why in this episode, we're going to be concentrating on the Sunshine State. To get a clearer picture of why the Sunshine State matters so much in this election, I spoke to Kristen Soltis-Anderson, 
She's a Republican pollster, co-founder of Echelon Insights, and author of The Selfie Vote. A Florida native, she talked me through its political geography. The northern part of Florida is the closest to what you might think of as the traditional South in the United States. If you are somebody who's really focused on good old-fashioned college football, the northern part of the state is where you're going to find the most sort of traditional American Southern culture. I grew up in Central Florida, and Central Florida is where a lot of folks move when they come from places like Pennsylvania or the Midwest. So I grew up in Florida, but I, I, I don't particularly have a Southern accent because I grew up in the suburbs. Orlando is a place where a lot of folks move in and out. Same with Tampa, Florida. They're all part of what's known as the I-4 corridor. There's an interstate, a major highway that runs effectively from one coast of Florida to the other, connecting Tampa, Orlando, all the way up to Daytona Beach. And that's considered traditionally to be a pretty swing part of the state. It's a part of the state that tends to go back and forth depending on which political party is more likely to win an election. The further south in the state you go, then you get closer and closer to Miami and Broward County, which are traditionally Democratic strongholds. Now, there's a little bit of complication there as well, because the very large Cuban community in South Florida tends to be pretty conservative. They have very negative views of socialism. They have traditionally been a voting bloc that has gone Republican. So even within things like the Miami area, you have a lot of interesting uh, division depending on which part of Miami you're talking about or which voters in Miami you're talking about. So that is one big trend that you'll be watching. What Hispanics in Florida are up to? What are some of the other big trends that you'll be focusing on between now and November 3rd in Florida? Florida has a very large senior citizen population, and that's typically been a, a bonus to Republicans. But this year, that might be different. Donald Trump's handling of the COVID-19 crisis is not something that has endeared him to very many senior citizens. And in fact, two of the major national polls that have come out in recent days have both shown dramatic declines in Trump's standing with senior citizens in a state like Florida, that's going to be particularly challenging. There's a, a very large retiree community called The Villages that is in sort of north central Florida. It's just north of Orlando. It's enormous. It is a hugely important voter base. And it's the sort of place where Donald Trump would be expected to do quite well. I remember on election night in 2016, looking at voter turnout data, and I was looking at my original home county of Orange County, which is Orlando proper. And it seemed as though Hillary Clinton was hitting her marks. She was pulling in the number of votes she needed. She was pulling in the vote share that she needed. But if you looked just a little bit north to the counties in and around the villages where there are many retirees, you suddenly saw that not only was Donald Trump really doing very well there, but voter turnout was very, very high there for what you might expect. So turning out an energized senior vote in a place like Florida was key to Trump's victory in 2016. But there are real questions about whether he can sustain those sorts of numbers in 2020. And if he can't sustain those numbers in Florida, he's in real trouble, isn't he? I mean, does he have a path to victory without Florida? It doesn't seem to me that he does. Florida is the state that I think everyone should be watching on election night because Florida has policies in place that make it very likely their vote will be counted quite early. 
mail-in votes in Florida have to be received by the close of the polls on election day. Those that are received earlier will be counted ahead of time. And because of the importance of Florida in the electoral math, especially for Donald Trump, it's likely that we will know on election night who has won Florida. And if it is Joe Biden, it is extremely likely that that means Joe Biden will be the next president. So Florida, I think, is absolutely critical to Donald Trump, in part because it is often a bit more impervious to the national trends. Charlotte, Kristen made the point there that Florida's votes are likely to be counted on election night. I was talking to Elliot Morris earlier today, and he reckons that we'll be able to call Florida by about 9pm on election night. If Joe Biden does win Florida on the night, and polls at the moment are suggesting that he would, that would make it considerably harder, I think, for Donald Trump to credibly challenge the results when they come in in other states. So on the one hand, Donald Trump absolutely has to win Florida to win in the Electoral College. But Joe Biden doesn't necessarily, does he? That's right. So there are a number of states that are pretty big states that look like Biden will probably win, like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona. He won't definitely win those. But if he were to win some of those other big states, he could lose Florida and still win the election. But of the true toss-up states like Georgia, Ohio, North Carolina, Florida has by far the most electoral votes. So if Trump loses Florida, it's a really big blow to him. It's worth pointing out that another reason why we should care about Florida is because it's kind of a case study in whether Joe Biden can win two big groups in a big way, elderly voters and Hispanic voters. And if he can win them in Florida, it bodes well for him elsewhere. You know, Trump has reason to be a bit optimistic because in 2018, when there was this huge wave of support for Democrats, Republicans managed to hang on to Florida. Ron DeSantis won the governor's office. Rick Scott won the governorship. But if you kind of scratch at those results, it actually suggests a bit more vulnerability. You know, Ron DeSantis won, but in a recount. And Rick Scott, the former governor of Florida, won his Senate seat by only about 10,000 votes out of more than 8 million cast. So, you know, even without the recent shakiness in Trump's support among the elderly, it was clear that Florida, you know, he'd have to work pretty hard to try to retain Florida for Republicans. And what those results, so as you'll hear in the next couple of segments, I was in Florida last week, and and what I kept hearing is the 2018 blue wave didn't crest in Florida because Republicans invested so heavily after 2016 in Latino outreach. Scott was really good, in particular, at reaching out to Venezuelans and Puerto Ricans, and Trump has kept that up. The Republicans have kept that up in Florida. What that suggests to me is that Biden could do better than expected up north and worse than expected down south, at least for a Democrat. I think your point about it being a nail biter is well taken. I mean, Florida in the 80s went for Reagan in absolute landslides and for George H.W. Bush in absolute landslide by a margin of more than 30 points in 1984. And then, of course, there was the 2000 election, which was an extremely, extremely narrow margin. But even more recently, in 2012, Obama won the state with a margin of less than 1%. In 2016, Trump won it with a bit more room of a, a bit over 1%, but it's just become a very, very contested state. Okay, thank you both. In a moment, we'll hear how the campaign is playing out in a community with more golf courses than anywhere else in the world. First, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you really should be. Signing up is simple. Loads of you already have, and we're most grateful. You'll get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. 
Our Lexington columnist is in Pennsylvania, another big battleground this week. The finance section looks at how investors view the election. And there's a fascinating read on COVID death culture around the world, which is cheerier than it sounds. That link for a special rate is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your podcast app. Let's turn to the importance of the senior vote in Florida then. Fasman, you've been to Sumter County, the greyest in the whole of the US, I believe. Yeah, the weekend before last, I went to a Saturday morning Biden rally organized by the Villages Democratic Club. Now, the Villages, for those of you who aren't political journalists or retirees, is one of the largest and fastest growing retirement communities in the country. And it's a strange place. It's a perfectly manicured campus plonked down in the middle of rural central Florida. You need to be 55 to live there, and it's been described as a peopled golf delivery landscape, which is actually pretty accurate. A little slice of paradise, sunshine and golf galore. We have golf cart rallies, we have postcard writing parties, you name it, we, we do it. I'm Chris Stanley. I'm the president of the Villages Democratic Club. I hang out with the Democrats. I have the largest social group of my life. This is the largest Democratic club in the state. At the rally, around 40 Biden supporters waved signs by the side of the road. We, we have a constant stream of Republicans coming into the Democratic headquarters. And they say, you know, I'm a Republican and I'm going to stay a Republican. But what can I do to help you get rid of that guy? The mishandling of the COVID virus can't be set aside. You have noxious things that come out of his mouth almost every single day. It can be difficult to live here as a Democrat. And some people formed the Democratic Club, which has been a lifesaver for me. Without them, I, I'd be going nuts right now. It feels different this year. We dare to show ourselves a little bit more. I also went to nearby Seminole County, where I tagged along as Linda Trostine, the county Republican chair, was talking to voters. Oh, I think he did a great job. President Trump tells it like he sees it. And that's refreshing for a lot of people out here. We want to hear authenticity, and there's no doubt President Trump has authenticity. Also in Seminole, I spoke to Joe Gruders, who chairs the Republican Party of Florida. He says that campaigning is no longer about persuasion. We're no longer in a swing type campaigns where it used to be where you used to be able to identify the swing voters and go out and, and go after them. We're out there pounding the pavement every day. So we made over 1.7 million door knocks where we've hit. Joe Biden and his team is basically trying to win this campaign from their basement. Joe cites good economic numbers, at least pre-COVID, and school choice, as well as law and order as issues that play well in Central Florida. We uh, are well on our way to victory. This is the president's home state. There's a lot at stake. Uh, The Floridians love him. They love the fact that he's focused on the economy and law and order and safety and security. And I think that's why his numbers continue to trend our way. And we're just going to continue to pound away until uh, we deliver Florida's 29 electoral votes on his behalf on November 3rd. Charlotte, 
One thing that analysts of American politics say again and again is that the country is so partisan that hardly anybody changes their minds at election time. However, if you look at seniors in Florida, in 2016, Donald Trump won that group, voters older than 65, by 17 points, an absolute landslide. If you look at some of the polls now, Joe Biden is winning them by a couple of points. That is a huge shift given that the first law of voter behavior when it comes to American politics is usually stability. Yes, I agree. I've been really, really struck by those numbers. And I have to say that I was hit with a big pang of jealousy listening to that great package that John Fassman recorded. I went to the villages in 2008 and there was a rally there that really cemented Sarah Palin as a star. She was able to attract tens of thousands of people to the villages, far more than President Bush had been able to attract a few years earlier. But what strikes me most about this election versus 2008 or or 2012, and I think this may be part of the reason why you've seen that huge swing in voter numbers, is that back then there were these kind of wonky debates about uh, social security reform, about Medicare, about lowering prescription drug prices. And it strikes me that this year it's about which candidate do you trust to keep you alive by December? You know, it's about COVID. It's about Trump's handling of COVID. And so some of these traditional conversations that would have dominated um, any effort to win the vote of the elderly, particularly in Florida, are a bit out the window. Yeah, it also suggests that Joe Gruder's theory of the campaign is not quite right. The idea that there is a fixed block of Republicans here and a fixed block of Democrats here, and you need to get your people to the polls, all of them in as large numbers as possible. A campaign may not be able to persuade them at this point, but certainly events can change people's minds. And that appears to be what's happened with seniors, at least in in Florida and Pennsylvania. And also there's that NBC poll that just came out that showed Biden up by 27 points among seniors nationally. I mean, that's extraordinary. The last Democrat to win seniors was Al Gore in 2000 when he convinced them that George Bush was coming for their Social Security. John, has Donald Trump's tactic of attacking Joe Biden for his age backfired hugely here? That's a great question. And I hadn't really thought about that. But I can see if you're an active 75 or 80 year old, I could see being insulted by the implication that Joe Biden was in cognitive decline. I mean, he has always been loquacious. He has never been a very good candidate. He's always been somewhat rambling. But he doesn't seem demonstrably more so now than he did 10 years ago. And I could see that attack that can be read as ageist as pushing some older voters away. Yeah, I think that might be what's happened here. I mean, everybody assumes looking at Joe Biden's numbers with seniors that President Trump's handling of COVID-19 is what's really done the damage to President Trump's polling numbers there. But actually, if you go back to before the epidemic hit America, Joe Biden was doing much, much better with seniors than Hillary Clinton did in 2016, which suggests that seniors were predisposed to like Joe Biden before COVID even came along. I also think there is a, a block of voters who, during the Clinton presidency, really did not like Hillary Clinton's role, for better or worse in the 90s in that presidency. And those people are those who are over 65 now. So that may have hurt Clinton in particular. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to talk about the second demographic megatrend in Florida in 2020 and talk about how Hispanics see this election. In particular, we're going to focus on Dominicans in Miami. Given the discussion we've been having about how crucial Florida is in this election, it seems extraordinary that only this week Joe Biden made his first campaign stop in Miami since securing the nomination in February. 
Keep in mind that Miami-Dade was the county where a knife-edge ballot count held up the election result for weeks in 2000. Biden stopped in Little Havana, of course. Fasman, you also went to Miami when you were in Florida. Yeah, I was in uh, Miami-Dade County, which is the most populous and diverse county in Florida. And it's a place where Democrats really need to run up their margins to have a hope of winning the state. On weekends, Biden supporters have been holding caravans. People decorate their cars with flags and pro-Biden paraphernalia and drive around sounding their horns and waving. We are here uh, right before a caravan, uh, Dominicanos uh, con Biden, uh, which is part of the Biden campaign, obviously, and really just uh, uh, ramping up the enthusiasm uh, to elect Joe Biden. Each caravan is organized by and for people from different countries of origin. And of course, if you look at the cars, uh, there's a couple cars with uh, Cuban flags, Puerto Rican flags, American flags. Obviously, it's a very diverse community. You know, the Dominican pride is definitely on display. I attended one with State Senator J.J. Rodriguez in Alapada. It's a neighborhood mostly in the city of Miami proper, sort of between Little Haiti and Little Havana. And it's the center of Miami's Dominican community. We know how much democracy costs in life and blood and, and, and liberties and to our people. The pandemic is hitting us big time. And we think we have to remove that guy from the White House. I, I think that being a Latina from South Florida, I see it and there are a lot of Trump supporters here. We are out there. Uh, it is absolutely not the case that we're kind of leaving any territory undefended. It's just that a lot of our counterparts on the Republican side are acting like there's no pandemic. How do you think Florida's going to go this year? I've heard all kinds of things about President Trump's unexpected strength, particularly with Latinos. Are you concerned? Listen, it's, it's tight. Away from the caravan, I spoke to Helen Aguirre-Ferre. She's the executive director of the Republican Party of Florida, and she's worked for Governor Ron DeSantis and in the Trump White House. And she told me the Republicans' superior organizing is what will win them Hispanic votes. There's been a lot of work and effort that's been done to make sure that we reach out to voters and that we reach out to voters physically. This year, of course, has presented a lot of challenges because of the coronavirus. But having said that, the phone calls, the knocking on doors, the organization has had an enormous impact. And I think we are soon to see that the difference in voter registration between Republican registered voters and Democrats has shrunk to the smallest difference between the two in our recorded history. And tell me a bit about that outreach to Hispanic voters. I think when most people think of Florida's Hispanic population, they think first of Cubans who make up a large share of the population. But President Trump seems to be doing very well with with non-Cuban Hispanics too. Why is that? What's behind it? What sort of arguments are resonating? You know, one of the things that you look at with the Hispanic community is that many who come here, come here not for economic opportunities, but many have come because of political oppression and socialist policies from their countries of origin. So when you look at Venezuelans, when you look at Colombians, when you look at Nicaraguans, uh, you really see where that actually plays out. And so this year in particular, when you have seen the violence in so many cities. Antifa is, forget what Joe Biden has said, Antifa is not just an idea, it's actually a movement and it's a political movement, it's Marxist. That message of that type of socialism, that 
mob violence that overtakes cities and burns down private property. I think that's the type of thing that for the first time people in the United States can readily see and identify with what these Hispanics have been saying for many years now. Some people in other parts of America, some people who don't have that background that Venezuelan Americans, Colombian Americans, Nicaraguan Americans have, might look at Antifa and see just kids on the street rioting. It's seen as a real threat in South Florida in a way that it may not be elsewhere. Well, you definitely see it not only, you know, in South Florida, but in Tampa, you've had a number of experiences where people dining on street cafes have been assaulted. For two weeks after Memorial Day weekend, there were a number of cities in Florida, including Fort Lauderdale, including Jacksonville, where you did see violence and you did see looting. And there is just no justification for that. We should be a country that stands by rule of law. So that type of message particularly resonates with these voters. I was down in Florida last weekend. I was out with Republicans in Florida. And one of the things that I heard both from them and from Democrats is that Republicans have just been present across Florida, but particularly in Hispanic communities in a way that Democrats have not. Does that jibe with what you were seeing? And if so, when did that start? What is the sort of genesis of that outreach? We never left Florida. You know, the RNC and the Republican Party didn't dismantle uh, after 2016. Democrats tend to come just when it's election time. And it's that type of pandering that is just so stale and old and really ineffective. And I think people are absolutely tired of that. Communities need to know that you're not there just for elections, but that you're actually a part of the community. So Charlotte, as John's reporting demonstrated there, Joe Biden may be doing very well among seniors, but Donald Trump is doing surprisingly well among Hispanic voters in Florida, at least. For as long as I've been covering American politics, Democratic strategists have been hoping that a more diverse electorate in states like Florida would give their party a lock on the presidency. If you look at what's actually happening in Florida among Hispanics, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yes, I mean, it's worth pointing out that that Biden is still leading among Hispanic voters in Florida. It's just by a much tighter margin than Clinton won them in 2016. He is still leading. But I think, that, to your point, that it's really dangerous to overgeneralize too much. So Hispanic voters are not a, a monolith, in part because they come from countries with very different politics. So you see that particularly in Florida, where you have a smaller share of Mexican-American voters and a larger share of, of voters who might lean more conservative um, to John's reporting, depending on where they came from, in particular those from with Cuban heritage and those from Venezuela. Yeah, Charlotte, I think that's a very good point. And one of the ways that the Trump campaign is trying to motivate these voters is with a Fighters Against Socialism bus tour on Sunday through the Tampa area in Central and South Florida. It's going to be Don Jr. helming that. But, you know, one of the biggest influxes of Latino voters in Florida has been Puerto Ricans who came in the wake of Hurricane Maria and have settled in large numbers in, in Central Florida, especially around Orlando and Kissimmee. They tend to vote largely Democratic. John, one of the things that your reporting brought out, for me at least, is how that anti-socialism message that Donald Trump's been pushing really hard and Mike Pence has been pushing hard as well, plays pretty well with Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans, people who've migrated from countries with first-hand experience of 
actual socialist authoritarian governments. The single weirdest encounter I had with a voter in 2016, and there were quite a few, believe me, was reporting on the Republican primary in Florida that year. I remember standing outside the polling station on election day and talking to various Republican primary voters as they came and went. And one of the voters I talked to was an elderly Cuban man. And I asked him how he'd voted. And he said, I voted for Ted Cruz, but I really wanted to vote for Donald Trump. So I said, okay, that's really interesting. Please, can you explain that to me? And he said, well, I wanted to vote for Trump because I think this country needs a dictator to sort it out. But I didn't want to be responsible for bringing a dictator to America, so I voted for Cruz. (laughs) That's terrific. Ron DeSantis, the governor, in his campaign against Andrew Gillum, who's the black mayor of, of Tallahassee in 2018, he was really able to win not by having concrete discussion of substantive policy, but he was able to be effective really by presenting Gillum as a radical socialist. And that worked for him. And so you see that being repeated again this year. Um, But I do think, you know, this is going to be such a tight race. And in, in the past week, you've seen how this could bubble up in kind of ugly ways. The state's election website crashed on Monday because there was a huge demand for voter registration. And then Ron DeSantis did did extend the registration deadline by a few hours, but a coalition of voting groups is suing to extend the deadline further. And DeSantis, in opposing that extension, says that doing so would cause confusion and undermine the public's faith in the presidential election. I think you could make a pretty easy argument that not extending the uh, the registration deadline would undermine the faith in the election. But That's just one way that I think you see this contest intensifying in Florida. And I think the next few weeks will be worth watching. And John, on election night itself, you'll be watching the returns from Miami-Dade County to see how well or poorly President Trump has done with Hispanics there. There are the swing counties, the bellwether counties, places like Duval, uh, Pinellas, Seminole. What else will you be watching for as those election returns come in? I'll be watching the opposite as well. I'll be watching to see how well Trump does in Duval and the counties in North Florida and the Panhandle. Um, I'll be watching, you mentioned Pinellas. There's also, you know, Polk, Pasco, Alachua, Jefferson counties, all those places tend to swing. And those are the places I think where the election will be, will be won or lost. Well, as we said at the top of the podcast, we'll find out what happens in those counties in just 24 days. Before you go, I have a quiz for you. Charlotte, you'll be relieved to know it's not about swing counties in Florida. I've got a quote from the Economist archive. It comes from an issue that appeared three weeks after election day. It is not yet known what is the exact result of the presidential election. The piece reported a controversy over vote counting in Florida. What was the year? That had to be pretty early, right? I don't know, uh, 36, 40? There was some disputed election in the 19th century that I'm going to stick with. I can't remember who it was. It was not Hayes. It might have been Hayes. Oh, would that? I don't know. Would, I, I can't give you the exact election year, but I'm just going to say Would that 1870s. have been the, the real mess, the 1876 mess? Yeah. 1876, if it's the screwed up election then, right? I think you both get a point for this, actually. The results were disputed in South Carolina and Louisiana as well that year, 1876, leaving 20 electoral votes in the balance. 
In the end, the presidency was decided by the Compromise of 1877. Democrats conceded those 20 votes to Rutherford Hayes. In return, the Republican candidate agreed to withdraw federal troops from the South, bringing an end to Reconstruction. Hayes is one of five presidents to have wound up in the White House without winning the popular vote. Name the other four. Trump, Bush. Trump, Bush. You've both got the first two. I don't know the other four. I just know Trump and Bush. The other two are both 19th century ones. Oh, no idea. I'm not going to be able I don't know. Was John Tyler one of them? I'm going to put you out of your misery. Benjamin Harrison in 1888 and John Quincy Adams in 1824. 1824 was the first time a popular vote count was made. Andrew Jackson won more than 152,000 votes, a huge 10-point margin over Adams. Jackson was so bitter about the loss that he formed the Democratic Party. Well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. We're leaving you with a special arrangement of the Checks and Balance theme tune in tribute to guitar legend Eddie Van Halen, who passed away this week. If you like the podcast, please tell people and leave a rating and a review. You can get in touch on email. The address is radio at economist.com. Louis Nankamanel and Daniel Lloyd Evans are the composers of our wonderful theme music. Thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.